coming up. What an excellent day for hospitals. Welcome to Minute 37 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute begins with Dr. Klein saying, Goddamn cunt. Lester. I, 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 it says it in the script. I have to say it. You're just such a nice Catholic boy. <laughs> Listen oh, to you. Oh, my goodness. Well, our minute ends with Karis and his uncle entering the nurse's office of Bellevue Hospital. Bellevue Hospital. Yeah. Just a great joke-filled, light-hearted romp this minute from beginning to end. It's getting harder and harder to make jokes about this stuff, but we're sure as hell going to try. That's our promise here at The Exorcist Minute. <laughs> if they don't like jokes, they can go listen to some other podcasts. Right. <laughs> or maybe just watch The Exorcist. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but let's move away from this hopeless hospital and get back to the top of our minute where we are in a, uh, a hopeless hospital. Wow. Okay. So both these scenes feature hospitals in a not so great light. Uh, are we making a commentary here about uh, the ineptitude of hospitals or doctors? Or? Well, to put my uh, tourist film critic hat, that's where we're looking at the author of the film, which the uh, the French film critics in the 1950s decided was the director. So huh. we look at the director. Uh, and I'd say that, you know, potentially we're looking at the ineptitude of systems in general. Hmm. So uh, Friedkin's previous film, The French Connection, is about the ineptitude of uh, the police department to a lesser extent say the newspapers uh, you know the, the media who doesn't quite understand how the police work and uh yeah no one no heroes everything's messy mm, interesting yeah so mm. uh the other thing i want to point out before we move on uh, mm -hmm. from dr klein is that this first dr klein sequence of course yeah is from tvyns oh the version you've never seen TVYNS. <laughs> oh, you just sprung that on me in this episode. <laughs> the version TVYNS. Okay. Yeah, that's the version you've never heard of um, initialized like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so the this acronym is all... I've never <laughs> The acronym yeah. you've never heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is stuff that was cut out. T-A-Y-N-H. <laughs> no, I'm T T A Y. N H. Yes, right, yes, right. yes. That's yes, the yes, acronym yes. for the acronym you've never heard. <laughs> right. So again, if you if you buy this on Blu-ray to watch or on Amazon, it's called the director's cut. Mm -hmm. um, in the theaters in the, in 2000, this was called the version you've never seen. Right. So this was stuff that was cut out. This whole sequence of Dr. Klein at the beginning with the nurse with the uh, coffee filter on her head with Reagan spinning around. Right. We did not see that in 1973. So right. the original version had uh, Bellevue as being this terrible hospital before we see, um, you know, a, a much friendlier but still inept hospital here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So now in 2000, Friedkin has put this back and some people say it's very helpful. Um mm. In Roger Ebert's review of the, um, the not the remake, but the director's cut that we've seen here, yeah. um, of 2000, he says that this is one of the only things that he prefers to have added in um, to the new cut. Yes. He says that some of the other scenes that we'll, we haven't quite looked at um, mm -hmm. uh, are either neutral or hurtful, and this is the one that makes the most sense to put in. Oh, interesting okay so this is his this is his only like he's he's allowed for this one to be it's like this one this one 
is good. Yes. And I like this sequence a lot. What do you think about it as a whole before we move off of it? I do like this sequence. I it just like it's news to me about uh, what you say about Roger Ebert, because mm-hmm. there is I mean, there is an added scene later on. We'll get to it that I think is is crucial. I think it's one that that Blatty fought for um, tooth and nail. Um, and I'm glad we have it in there. Um, and I, oh, I think I know what you would mean. This is this is a conversation really near the end of the film then. right? Yes. 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 Gotcha. Um, okay. But uh, wow. So he doesn't even like that one. Um uh, well, you know, I think that um, in his review, which you could look at, which one of the mm-hmm. things I like about Roger Ebert, the reason he became my favorite critic is because he was one of the first critics to have his entire archive online. Ah. So you could you could look and compare his original four-star review of the original release of The Exorcist, and then you could mm. look at the comparison. And I think that, um, you know, as he's watching it without like a brochure that Warner Brothers gave them of what the changes were. Right. He's only, he isn't, he doesn't pick up on some of the changes uh, at all. So I don't mm. know if he even mentions that one. Um, I'll have to oh. look at that review again. Okay. But certainly there's the most famous uh, add on to here that the fans are really clamoring for. He says mm. it's distracting, and we'll talk about that. Yes. There's yes. a little debate about that. So he says there's this scene, that scene, and then the ending of The Exorcist, which I, the new cut, which I really do not like, and we'll oh. debate about that later. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yes. Oh my goodness, yeah. Where's that? Okay, so more. So to he come, noticed folks. that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess okay. So we'll. I guess we're, I don't know why we're being cagey about these spoilers in case, but right. <laughs> but so if you want to skip ahead for ten seconds, he does not like the very famous spider walk sequence. Yeah. Oh, um, which is uh, you know people debate about that, and he yeah. he is with me and does not like the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he is neutral about the changes with Father Dyer at the end. Interesting. Okay. And and then he says this is the only good one. Wow. So he doesn't remember that there's new new footage at the beginning of the film where we we start with Georgetown rather than starting directly from right, the rock. Right. And I don't think he even picks up on that conversation between um uh, Father Marin and Father um Father Karras uh, that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, and that's the yeah, that's that's, that's the, one uh, you like. the one that I'm yeah. Um interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So yeah, much more to come folks. Stay with us and uh yeah, we'll definitely talk about all of those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, actually Keenan, I'm I'm very very glad you uh you brought up that yeah, this whole um kind of front and uh chris and reagan hospital scene was added um Mm -hmm. yeah it's good that we it's good that we have that on record Mm -hmm. okay so back to our minute (laughs) right after klein says uh, sorry mom uh goddamn cunt lester Uh, oh my god (laughs) we we cut to ellen burston's face and I love the very subtle acting that she does here. Again, this reminds me of what Sir Michael Caine says in his book, Acting in Film, and what he demonstrates in that uh, YouTube workshop I was talking about uh, by the same name. The camera sees everything. The camera is the most attentive audience member there will ever be. In fact, I think the way Sir, Sir Michael Caine puts it, he says, it's the most attentive, devoted lover. Mm-hmm. It sees every movement, every twitch, every blink, every hair on your head, every non-movement. Because not moving, folks, remaining perfectly still as a reaction uh, to something is still a reaction. In fact, it can be a very powerful reaction. It's actually one of my favorites. I love doing a scene where someone else drops a big reveal, something that's supposed to make me angry or scared or sad, and the camera cuts back to me, and instead of erupting into a blind rage, I'm just perfectly still. My eyes are trained on the other actor. And later, people will come up to me, uh, the director, the camera person, or, or even uh, the other actor, and they'll be like, I could feel the anger coming off of you. It was palpable. But really, it's this wonderful magician's trick. I guess I'm giving away the magic here. But yeah, oftentimes, 
Whatever emotion we have as the audience member, we will project onto that actor, especially if they do their job, they give us this uh, blank canvas to work with. Right. And a lot of um, a lot of Soviet film theory is built upon the same idea with editing, this idea of the Kuleshov effect, which you might have heard, you know, with the um, the do you know this where where we use a, a, a emotionally ambiguous shot of an actor, depending on what we cut to, uh, because the actor is giving us a, a real emotional response, but it's ambiguous. So it, right. it's actually a blank slate. So when we cut to him looking at a bowl of soup, we think he's hungry. And if we use the exact same footage and then cut to a shot of usually the uh, thought experiment, it's like seeing him watching a, a little girl play with a doll, then that same expression, which again is emotionally ambiguous, that we thought, that we felt, was about soup and hunger, and now it's about fatherly feelings and nostalgia and, and all of that. Right. Um, that the blank slate, because of the way that the film medium works, um, we, we the audience uh, projects onto the actor everything that they're feeling. Right. Mm, yes. um, yeah, I think Michael Caine was t uh, talks a lot about in his book about, um, um, you know, working with directors who don't understand as well as he does about the camera and how, you know, the, sometimes the director will be like, I'm not seeing what you're doing, Michael, you know? And he says, well, where are you? Because I'm acting for the camera. Right. The camera's over there. So you couldn't possibly see what I was working with. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and that's it. Yeah. Like, like the camera is like this, this magic uh, device that, yeah, that it, it can see even better than human beings, I think. Mm -hmm. um, right. And yeah. So when we're looking at the dailies, when we're looking at the rushes, when we're looking at what we have filmed, we're going to notice stuff that uh, we as the director or we as the other actor didn't even notice when we were like literally there on set. We were mm -hmm. physically closer than the camera, mm -hmm. but we just don't have the eye that the camera has. Yeah, I like this transition that Ellen Burstyn does, right? Where she she is just taking it in. It's a neutral slate, and mm -hmm. then it very slowly turns into all sorts of colors, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a embarrassment, also kind of pride at the same time of her daughter, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's shock, it's it's uh, embarrassment, it's um, and then it's this you know shared. Uh, moment with the doctor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah all this really colorful wonderful stuff yeah and on top of that like like on top of all of that like you're like well okay i'm in a public place i'm with a person like so i can't just let my like initial reaction just like you know burst out right mm -hmm. so she's she's also like composing herself at the same time as she's like living all of these all of these feelings and there you go folks it, it the movie did exactly what it uh, or we did exactly what the movie wanted us to do like we're putting all these feelings on top of you know right. uh, ellen burston's reaction right um, now speaking of reactions after, oh, wait, no, I, I don't want to, um, go past this. So you mentioned Soviet film theory again, mm. folks, if you, if you've listened, we've, we've talked about Soviet film theory before on this show when we were talking about, right? Like, um, uh, the Pazuzu, statues, right? right? Pazuzu. And it was, uh, what was it? Um, it was thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? That's With the, right. Like, the human animal and then Pazuzu as the, uh, uh, combination of those two. Right. So, the Soviets would call it dialectical, right? Oh. To see what the opposite, to see what something is, you need to see what the opposite of it is. And then we see yes. the combination of them. So how do you experience, uh, dryness without, or I'm sorry, how do you experience wetness without knowing what dryness is? You right. never, you never know what, uh, dryness is. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, I hope, I hope you have a notepad open and you're taking notes because this <laughs> will be on the test. 
Yeah, you know, I think we're lucky at UNLV Film because we have uh, one of our professors, Jason Edmonston, is a, is incredible, um, incredibly knowledgeable about Soviet film theory. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times they teach it in film schools, but it's it's very quickly the thing that you want to get away from as fast as possible because yeah. it feels cold and dry. Um, and we're lucky that we have someone who I think has um, infected me with his love of it because it it's not cold and dry. It's very emotional. Um, yes. But they they happen to name it before any of any of the other countries are working on film theory the soviets are and they yeah. come up with names like dialectical and uh, and that makes it seem like oh it's really heady but um yeah. you know this is the basis of how film editing works especially even in narrative-based very serious or very emotional films like the exorcist right right in soviet film theory film <laughs> analyzes you <laughs> another deep cut folks um what was his name yakov smirnov yakov smirnov yeah yeah okay we got gallagher we got yakov we got, yeah. <laughs> I think that's his real name, but he, you know, he comes to America and he's like, my name is Yakov Smirnov. So of course I need to be a stand-up comedian. (laughs) The only job available to me is comedian. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. So yeah, speaking of reactions, um, after this reaction shot from Burston, we get an over the shoulder shot where we're looking at Klein and I swear, Keenan, does he look like he's having a laugh? Like, if I didn't know any better, I'd say what's happening here is that something happened right before Friedkin yelled action, and we're catching the tail end of that in Klein's face. We know Friedkin mm. likes to do crazy things. Um, I don't think it's happened yet, but there are some reaction shots in this film uh, that are a direct result of Friedkin firing a gun mm-hmm. in the studio to startle the actors. And this almost seems like he did something here like he told a joke or something and barton Heyman, the actor who plays klein is maybe reacting to that like it's a weird like they're they're trying not to laugh like both of them you look at it right it's a weird reaction um mm, I, I like it i'm not sure that it's some um, one of those I, I know what you mean uh like using something before action or after cut which is mm-hmm. um not out of bounds i think film actors understand that that's you know um Fair game, not firing a gun next to someone's ear, right? <laughs> to getting some, but but I don't know. I think that this is a real actorly moment. I think that they've discovered it together. Um, it, okay. it's maybe weird because it's uh, unexpected, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is very serious. Your your daughter said this awful thing, but yeah. Um, now there's a bunch of YouTube videos, you know, where you can find their parents like their their children have accidentally said some swear word and it's one of the most like popular uh, YouTube subgenres of say that thing you said again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> shit. Oh, no, the baby said shit. Let's have the baby do it again and again and again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We happened uh, it, we happened upon this uh, at uh, at uh, Christmas dinner, actually. Um, we had so my my little godson. Uh, so my brother and his wife and uh, uh, my nephew, my godson, uh, came to have dinner with us. And we didn't film it and show it for all the world <laughs> to see. But um, he's you know, he's eating and he's talking about like all the uh, the foods and he's talking about all of the utensils. And he has a little bit of trouble saying fork <laughs> um and it sounds a lot like something else and uh yeah he just he, he just loved talking about the fork and just saying it again and again and we you know we couldn't help ourselves we chuckled <laughs> um so yeah you're right actually keenan maybe this is a result of so you know yeah let's not think that you know it's it's all um Friedkin behind the scenes firing guns and telling stupid jokes and you know like like uh, uh, I don't know I don't know uh, uh, making people wear ice packs uh, you know to, to emulate uh, feeling cold let's let's uh, give these actors some credit and maybe this is a genuine moment of you know this doctor had to say this word and repeat what this uh, this little girl said and they're both kind of just like a little bit um, 
surprised until after by it. Right? Yeah. Um, and again, not to say that using those moments before action or after cut are is bad. Sometimes you mm -hmm. find some very interesting things there. Right, right. Right. The other stuff, yeah, the, the playing tricks on actors I don't necessarily agree with. Correct. Yeah. Um, so at this news that her daughter is now swearing and using language that she's never used before, and actually, okay, pause right here, because I just remembered something. And Chris jumps to this conclusion in the book as well. Uh, Keenan, whom do we know that is close to this family that, in the book at least, has been hanging around the house, hanging around Chris, cursing up a storm, cursing up a very British storm, <laughs> much more liberal with certain words that we Americans may blanch at, uh, but which he might use as, say, a noun, an adjective, a verb, an <laughs> adverb, and probably, if he tries, a conjunction. Oh, and, I think you can do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll work on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And, and this person we discovered in a previous scene, Reagan is coming to terms with potentially seeing as a permanent father figure. Mm -hmm. I, like, I just thought of this now, and I, I'm so proud of it. Keenan, tell me if I'm crazy. In the book, Chris and Reagan are on the car ride home, uh, and we get a little peek into Chris's mind, and she concludes that Reagan picked the swearing up from Burke. And she's annoyed, and she's going to have herself a word with Burke, because sweet as he is, um, he has no filter sometimes, and now her daughter is swearing in the exact same way that he swears. Not only that, Chris has additional information, and we have additional information too. We know that Reagan thinks Burke might be her new father. Okay, so that's the book and the movie stuff. Now, this is my edition. Now, let's put ourselves in Reagan's position for just a second. Let's forget that this is all bullshit and that it's actually Captain Howie, right? <laughs> we know that. We know that already. But for this, let's actually just imagine there's no demon and Reagan is a distressed child dealing with the trauma of divorce and now facing the possibility of having a new dad. A new dad in the person of someone you like. This is Uncle Burke. Remember, in the book, Uncle Burke, big movie director Uncle Burke, stopped directing his movie so that he and the rest of the cast and crew could sing Happy Birthday to you. And they gave you a cake. Uncle Burke did that. Uncle Burke shut down production so that you could have your birthday. Real Dad didn't do that. Where was Real Dad on that day? Real Dad, Howard, was out on a yacht playing Captain. Captain Howard. Captain right? Howard. Captain Howard. <laughs> Meanwhile, Uncle Burke is giving you the best birthday. Right. So now I'm thinking, and again, this isn't in the book or the movie, but again, just a fun little think piece. Uh, but what if Chris is putting the pieces together in this way, saying, hmm, Reagan likes Uncle Burke, but she's also scared he's going to steal me away. And now she's acting like him. Reagan is acting like Burke. And maybe Reagan doesn't understand that Burke is complicated right? <laughs> like all human beings right like all human beings burke has flaws right no. i thought complicated meant uh, gay <laughs> i thought that was oh, your no, no, code no, no. word for gay <laughs> what's he no, like I mean, oh he's complicated no, oh just no, 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 my no. type <laughs> <laughs> no i wasn't alluding to that um but i mean there's there's also right there's there's that as well right but that's like reagan's not even thinking of that right. um but she's also not understanding so what i mean by complicated is like when children look up to an adult mm -hmm. um they they sort of forget that adults are human beings right? right like they have flaws right so like burke's swearing she would just kind of lump in with all of the other stuff 
that is Burke, right? She sees yeah. that Uncle right. She sees that's cool that, about him, right? That's yeah. cool about right. Yeah. <laughs> she sees Uncle Burke is a good guy, and mm-hmm. so everything Uncle Burke does must be okay, right? Because he's a grown up, and grown ups have it all figured out, right? So swearing must be okay. Swearing is fun because Uncle Burke does it, and Uncle Burke is good. And now, my mom likes Uncle Burke. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, can I mention something about this? So, sure. I like I like Uncle Burke. Um, mm-hmm. So, I'm I'm from I'm from Hawaii, and um, uh, you know, you, you you might have some of your parents' friends that you call uncle or aunt without knowing, you know, without right. they're not really related to you, but they're not um, blood related. Yeah. Right. Uh, a lot of people have that in in Hawaii. That's true of everybody. You call everybody mm-hmm. uncle and auntie, um, and like even at the store, instead of saying thank you, ma'am, if it's an older lady, you'll say thank you, auntie. That she's the cashier or the the chef behind the counter or what have you. Thank yeah. you, auntie. Thank you, uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the cutest things, the cutest version of this I've ever had is um, my cousin. Um, my cousin. His his parents, um, well, let's say my cousin Josh and his mom, uh, Rochelle, um, she had a long term boyfriend. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was, hey, this is your Uncle Ray. Call him Uncle Ray. Right. right. So it was Uncle Ray, Uncle, Uncle Ray, Uncle Ray. And I, I was there at their wedding when finally um, Rochelle and Ray got married. And mm-hmm. so Josh was like, hey, can I get anybody a drink? He's like a teenage. He's, he's trying to help out his, as now his parents wedding. He says, mom, can I get you anything? Uncle Ray. Oh. I can't call you Uncle Ray anymore, right? <laughs> Uncle Ray, oh, dad. And I saw, I, I I remember that I saw the moment where this kid called his dad, dad for the first time. Right. It was all oh, so sweet, oh. <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> Everyone yeah. was like, oh, yes, dad. <laughs> oh, what, a, what an awesome moment yeah. right, to have, to have witnessed, to have mm-hmm. captured. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, to speak to what you're saying, uh, Keenan, I mean, like, you know, both you and I had uh, taken uh, Japanese in the past, right? Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And over there, right? Like, it, it's uh, the the way that you address strangers kind of like depends upon their age. And mm-hmm. uh, like, so uh, you might call um, an older woman or, or, or like, let's say an older girl, you might say big sister, right? Mm-hmm. You might say onesan, right? Like, even if they're not uh, related to you, right. right? You'll call them big sister. Um, and then like uh, uh, someone who is slightly older, you might call like auntie. Or mm-hmm. uncle. And I remember my first Japanese teacher kind of like making a joke about the first time that she was referred to not as big sister, but as auntie. <laughs> and she was like, that, is, that was a moment in my life that I will never forget. Right? This, this little girl walks up to me and it's like, you know, you because like all her life she had been, you know, big sister. Right. Right. But it's like, hey, auntie, can you get this for me? And it's like, oh, okay. That's, I guess I'm auntie now. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the things you notice when you learn just enough Japanese to know that the subtitles in your your anime uh, sub are wrong. Yeah, <laughs> then you feel really you feel really great about yourself. Like in um, at the end of My Neighbor Totoro, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, so that the end of My Neighbor Totoro, the sisters get uh, lost. The little sister has gotten lost, and she's sort yes. of sort of kind of run away, but not really. She doesn't quite know what she's doing. And then everyone's looking for her, and the Totoro um, helps the older sister find her. And um, in the English subtitles, it's like, oh, you sweet girl, I found you again. And of course, in right. the Japanese, it's you stupid idiot. Yeah. <laughs> she says, you baka little girl, right? <laughs> doesn't quite translate for the Americans. <laughs> oh my goodness, right? But like again, right, context is king, right? Mm-hmm. So like over there, right, the word baka, like we we look at baka and we're like, "Oh my god, such an insult." But like right. like like it's it's a thing that kids say to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a thing that parents say to kids. It's you know, it's like it it is at the same time, you know, it means like stupid or fool, but it mm-hmm. also means like you silly billy, right? right like exactly. It, it can be that as well, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, and that's the trouble that you get into when you try to do these direct word for word kind of Google translates. You know, you forget that culture is also a part of it, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. We've fallen into the Totoro trap. <laughs> 
have a trap in this episode that's coming up. <laughs> this trap leads to the other traps. You, you have to oh, go yes. through the Totoro trap <laughs> to get to the other trap. He's your, he's your guide into the other trap. Yes, yes. <laughs> we might we might save this for a little bit later, but do you know about the, the theory about Totoro? Like the, like the hidden That thing? he is the angel of death? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that the girls are like, like dead for like a large chunk of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and he decides that they've earned their place back on Earth, so he's he sends them back to the parents. Oh, and he they're does? like they're like they're like worthy of not dying, right? Oh, I didn't know he sends them back. Oh, what, what's your interpretation? Of well, it? I just thought like like there, there's a moment in the in the film where mm-hmm. um you know they go off mm-hmm. and they die, and we're following them, and and like for the rest of the film, none of the adults interact with them. They don't notice when they speak. They don't like look That's at them. That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't know that they came back. So they just dead the whole time. You think? I think, well, I don't know. <laughs> See, now I'm going to have to go. I wonder if there's a Ghibli minute. Um, I have to, there must be, there must be, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I don't remember the ending, uh, very well, but yeah, they, they may have, they, Hey, maybe it has a happy ending. The ending is they go to the hospital to see the mom, um, yes. and they leave her a piece of corn that's uh, an ear of corn that says, you know, from, from your, for, to the best mom or something like that. Right. But yeah, the mom and dad don't see them up there. We just see okay, the corn. So, okay. So they don't, they don't see the girls. So, I mean that, ah, geez. Okay. Well, you know, we'll, we'll explore this in a, in a, in a later minute, but yeah, I am, go. I am Totoro angel of death. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Look upon my works. They might be in despair. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, let's go. Hey, let's Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I think Miyazaki has uh, denied this. I don't know. We'll have to sure. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Like... Okay. Okay. So back to this. So this was just like my little thought experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Uncle Burke, right? And this kind of like um, love-hate competitive uh, relationship that Reagan uh, or, or that Chris could think that Reagan is having right mm-hmm. uh, with with Uncle Burke because she doesn't know about the demon, of course. Right. Um, and so, hey, from Chris's point of view, this is a mental, emotional problem. Mm-hmm. Can these goddamn doctors forget their turf war with psychiatrists for just a second and refer my daughter to someone who can actually help her? She asked like four times in yes. this scene. <laughs> like, yeah. it's a psychiatrist problem. It's a psychiatrist problem. And Dr. Right. Klein just pushes her off every time. Yeah. And and like in the book, it's a little bit more clear. It's like an ego thing. Like doctors are in a turf war with psychiatrists and they mm-hmm. shit all over psychiatrists. Like, oh, psychiatry, this psychiatry, that like as if like they have they have less respect for psychiatry than they do for exorcisms. Right. Right. And it's it's bonkers. Like knowing like living in the world that we, that we live in now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, with where mental health has kind of advanced. Right. It's not perfect, but like, it, you know, mental health is um, is we're, we're looking a little bit more at it today. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's crazy. Like she's been asking uh, for this uh, from the beginning, right? Nobody fucking listens to her. Mm-hmm. Carl won't listen about the traps. Burke won't listen about the scripts. These goddamn doctors won't listen to her about her daughter. And spoilers, guys, there's a priest later on mm-hmm. who doesn't listen to her about an exorcism. Like, right. can she have one person, one person on her side, please? Well, I mean, there was one person on her side, wasn't there, right? Like always on her side through thick and thin. But now something's wrong with her. Right? Yeah. That's that's the whole problem, right? <sighs> but okay, so 
back to this office. Just to wrap up this scene, Chris asks again about a psychiatrist, and again, she gets shot down. I think this last way he shoots it down is very interesting. So so she asks one last time for a psychiatrist, and he says the simple, the best reason is often the simplest. So he he gives a version of Occam's razor, but not quite. Hmm. He actually he actually changes it. So um, dictionary.com says that Occam's razor <laughs> is that the simplest explanation is most likely the correct one. Hmm. Okay. So that's what he's trying to imply here. But he says that the simplest re- explanation is usually the best one, which is not exactly what um, what Occam's razor is. So he's like trying to brush it off and say, well, no, this the the simplest thing is is Ritalin. And that's the best idea as opposed to, but he says it in the format of Occam's razor, right? Yeah. Um, so the simplest explanation is most likely the correct one. Even Occam and people who ascribe to this idea, this axiom, leave room that it's not always the, the correct one. But that um, the basic idea with Occam's razor, right, is that the solution that um, doesn't require you to add more suppositions onto it is probably the most logical one. I like how he's misquoting this because this is yes. a doctor who misdiagnoses and misquotes with his little, you know, Melamed diploma. <laughs> right. But it's just if I if I say that it's a medical thing, that's the simplest. So that let's treat that like it's the best solution. Right. Huh. OK, so. And yeah, he wraps this up um, by telling Chris not to worry, to which Chris replies, how? Mm-hmm. And I like how we cut there. We don't get an answer, right? I don't even think he did answer her. I think he just looks no, at no. her. No, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Woman, <laughs> look, at my, look at my diplomas. <laughs> Do you see? Do you see this? Doctors are us right over there, right next to my toy car. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so... For now, we got to leave Chris uh, almost exactly at the half point of this minute, and we cut now to a scene which is almost a mirror opposite, uh, where the last scene was bright and colorful. This medical facility is dark and dungeon-like, almost subterranean, right? Uh, uh, fitting with our guy, Father Karras, whom we met so many minutes ago under the earth, right? On that subway platform. We are back with him now as he makes his way deeper and deeper into this horrible labyrinthine place. And he's got his uncle with him, almost like his guide, like how Dante had Virgil, uh, you know, guiding him through the different circles of hell and Dante's Inferno. That was that was kind of like what sprang to mind uh, uh, first for me. And then, uh, you know, uh, moving along this track, uh, it struck me on this viewing, folks, as so many new things are occurring to me, Keenan, have you ever heard of The Harrowing of Hell? No, that's a new one for me. Okay. Um, I feel like it might be a new one for a lot of people. I don't know. I mean, maybe our demographic knows about The Harrowing of Hell, right? <laughs> this this is The Exorcist. So, but <clears throat> I can feel a string from the path now. And I, and I hope our listeners uh, and my co-host will indulge me. But I think we've fallen into another trap here. Um, <laughs> this is not the Shakespeare trap. This is not the Marlowe trap. This is not the Dickens trap. And it's definitely not the Totoro trap. Um... <laughs> This is the hell trap. Oh no. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like the worst one. This is this is the worst trap, right? Um <laughs> And folks, I knew we were going to have to talk about hell eventually, but I didn't expect it so soon. Why? Because you associate hell with the devil, with fire, with the afterlife. You don't think about hell as 
a state of mind. Mm -hmm. But folks, folks, Father Karras, our dear friend Damien Karras, is in hell. Even as we are watching him in this scene enter a metaphorical hell in the shape of this horrible hospital, he's also bringing hell with him in his own mind. And maybe that's why this rescue, this harrowing, doesn't work out. So, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. The harrowing of hell, right? <clears throat> so harrowing means rescue? Uh, well, I uh, actually I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I think I think in the same way we talk about like the passion of the Christ in right. that sense, passion means like suffering. Suffering. Right? Yeah. Right, that's the so, Yoda. Suffering. Yeah. And we talk about like like oh, it was a harrowing journey. Right? right. And I've always I've never I've never you know this is this is how we learn language uh, I guess but like I've never actually looked it up but I always took that as like it means like you know you're going through something like like really heavy. Right. right. Yeah. So so. In Christian theology, uh, this is the name for the period of time between Jesus's crucifixion and his resurrection. Apparently, and I, I never knew about this bit of the story until I was in college, this is supposedly when Jesus goes down to hell to free everyone and bring them back up to heaven. And there's all these these depictions of him, these paintings of him down there with golden keys uh, to open up the gates and let everyone out. And sometimes he's like walking over Satan like a doormat or or Satan's like a dragon and Jesus has the dragon's mouth propped open and everyone is marching out, right? This was such a new concept for me. I didn't know about this part of the story till I was older. Like, as a kid, this was just never brought up in my religious upbringing, you know, and I guess because for kids, it's a little too heavy, right? Mm. But like even my religious friends, um, you know, it's like went to, you know, Sunday school with like recently, like we were, uh, you know, attending virtual mass for uh, for uh, Christmas. Um, and the priest did the whole like he was crucified, died, and he descended into hell, you know, portion of it, right? Like this is this is a part that he reads. And uh, my friend, I was there with him and, and he was like, I never knew about that part. So I guess maybe, uh, you know, this is a part that's like not really talked about a huh, lot. Yeah, I only know about it. So so it's the period after he is crucified. Right. So it is accomplished or it is it is finished. And then right. and then the next we hear about it typically is when um when the stone is pulled back and he's he's uh you know so like basically my my the part that I know is is from the point of view not from Jesus, but from um from the women who find him and then from the apostles. Precisely. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the focus is like even, you know, um, Easter holiday, right? Mm -hmm. And you go to church and, uh, you know, they tell the story or in all of the, um, you know, the film depictions of it, right? We are with the people who are, you know, uh, grieving for Jesus. Right. We're mourning. We're like, oh my gosh, he's gone. And, you know, and, and we don't know yet, you know, the big reveal, right, that he comes back. And so we're all sad. And then he comes back and it's this great, you know, uh, revelation, <laughs> revelation. Um, <laughs> and it, it like, it's like this happy thing. It's like, hey, I was away for a while, but now I'm back, right? And I thought the big surprise was like, I have defeated death, right? Like mm -hmm. death is no longer a problem, right? Um, like that's kind of like how I interpreted it. But like, I guess, okay, so according to the theology, he's going down to hell to save um, I guess what you would call like the vanilla sinners, right? <laughs> the, 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 the people that were good, right? You know, like, but uh, but they just went to hell because you know they weren't baptized. They uh, were you know, the unbaptized children, or um, yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone has original sin, right? Right, original sin, right? And that's that's also a thing I didn't learn about until way later. Is that according to the theology, before Jesus died, 
everyone just went to hell because mm-hmm. original sin, because Adam and Eve and, and the apple and all of that. And, you know, mankind is, is you know, they, we've, we've doomed ourselves because of this. So no matter how good you were, no matter how much of a good and pious life you led, you die before Jesus died in 33 AD and boom, straight to hell. And <laughs> you, like you got to wait around until he comes down there to bail you out. Right. And that means Kenan, that means Adam, Eve, Moses, Abraham, talking about Abrahamic, mm-hmm. David, all of them, all of them were down there. Yeah. And that, that, and that, that you know, as the, 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 in my atheist groups, like people who were like, what, what are you saying? Like Confucius went to hell. I mean, right. you know, right. Like, like really wise, wonderful uh, people. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, Confucius went to hell, mm -hmm. uh, the the Buddha went to hell. (laughs) Right, right, right. And Dante has a whole thing about that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because Virgil, Virgil is, is, uh, his guide Mm -hmm. down in hell because he like, and all of the, all of the people that Dante admires, right? All of these philosophers and everything like that, they're in like a really, really, you know, light kind of like, uh, you know, easy you know, chill uh, level of hell, right? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're not bad people, but they but they're also not like they also died before Jesus died. Right. Well, I mean, Socrates, right? uh, Socrates was great, but he he probably belongs in hell. Mm, <laughs> he yeah. probably did some. He probably got into some serious shit. Right, right. <laughs> but oh, oh, another. Okay, we're 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 in the hell trap already. In, in, <laughs> now, now we've fallen. Oh no, deeper into the Dante trap. <laughs> My favorite, my favorite thing Use about some music Dante, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got to get some Dante music. Um, my favorite thing about Dante, Keenan, mm-hmm. um, do you know who belongs in the deepest, deepest circle of hell, according to Dante? Is it not Judas Iscariot? Oh, yes. Okay, so there's a whole thing. Like, yeah, in, like, okay, I, was, I wasn't even going to go there, but yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah so so in dante right um satan is in the very very center and he's kind of like in this frozen lake and he right. has three heads and he's chewing on three of the worst sinners you know according to dante mm-hmm. the three worst sinners right and it's um it's uh uh brutus who, oh uh-huh, uh, right it's brutus who killed uh caesar um cassius who um you know conspired to kill caesar mm-hmm. and also killed caesar and then judas right, right? and so you have uh you have uh, the person who betrayed uh their uh, best friend the person who betrayed their country and the person who betrayed their lord uh-huh, right? right um so in and i think like uh like two of them are like uh feet first or head first and the other one is different right um probably judas is the different one right um but okay so i wasn't even going there um, <laughs> because because dante was was uh, uh he, he had a bone to pick with a, a certain group of people um in the deepest deepest circle of hell apparently um he's reserved that for uh usurers do you know what a usurer is i do that's not very nice dante yeah. Well, actually, what is what is your definition? Of so usury is um, is the giving out of loans at high interest or sometimes people just say interest at all. Yeah. Yeah. So basically people who um, charged interest. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm thinking, Keenan, I'm thinking Dante was in debt. <laughs> And he wrote his little, you know, his little fan fiction. He's like, I, I hate these guys and I hate these guys. And, you know, and he's putting them in, in the levels of hell. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, but anyway. And it, also this really hot chick is there and she loves me. <laughs> I love, yeah, folks, go back and read uh, Dante's Inferno. But like in, it, like read it with the understanding that like. Dante didn't know what, what's, you know, what's in hell. So he's just putting people that he really doesn't like in, right. in different levels of hell. It's like, yeah, and this guy has to eat mud for all eternity. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and the also, guy who looked yeah, at me funny yeah. <laughs> and and beatrice who is you know my love like mm-hmm. and but he she never knew him in real life it's like you know um i think everyone has this like a crush you, you get crushes on like baristas you know mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or like they made my coffee super special for me and yeah, they love yeah. me so much <laughs> and i'm never gonna talk to them right it's like that's yeah. that's what beatrice is to dante oh beatrice <laughs> oh, oh boy yeah so <laughs> So, okay, let's get out of the Dante mm. trap. And we're back in just the regular hell trap. Just the regular hell trap. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, so, but I wanted to talk about this. So like the, the idea that, um, yeah, uh, according to the theology, um, uh, before Jesus, uh, like everybody, so including Adam, Moses, uh, uh, Abraham, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, David, right. They're all in hell. Um, and that got me thinking, Keenan. Like with all of those people, those those patriarchs, is this just another way that the church was sticking it to the Jewish people being like, hey, all of your patriarchs and all of your holy people like Moses and and, uh, you know, uh, Abraham and Solomon uh, and and Noah, like like like, like, uh, you know, they also went to uh, like. Like we respect them too, and we honor them, and we venerate them too. But uh, also, they went to hell because they weren't Christian, and mm-hmm. Jesus had to go down there and get them out. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I think that that's a, you know this is a, a whole other thing, obviously a, a problem in Christianity, but it does seem to set up the idea that the Jews are are worse than pagans, right? Because the Jews, um, the, the the idea of like Jews having killed Christ, um, which is you know this whole thing <laughs> that, um, but yeah, that they're that that's worse than um, than pagans who never knew Christ. The Jews were given the option to know Christ and they didn't. So there's all this extra hatred for them. Right, right. Which I never understood also because like if you- No, it's all story, nonsense. It's all, it's, it's, all, <laughs> it's all anti-Semitism. Yeah. I want to be sure that I want to be sure people know that we know that, that that's all anti-Semitic Yeah, yeah, yeah. Garbage. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. But here's again, like I, I think we've talked about it on the show before, mm-hmm. folks, right? Like you get a religious text and you put it into the hands of people who want to use it- mm-hmm. um, you know, against other people. They want to put other people down. They want to subjugate them. They want to, you know, with like, you know, uh, for them, it was like a happy accident that someone translated Moses into having horns. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, we can use this. And this is our <laughs> ammunition that we can like say that, you know, Christians are better than Jews. You know, mm-hmm. it, like, again, people, people just, this is why we can't have nice things. People ruin <laughs> stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, so this idea, right back to, you know, like, uh, um, you know, everybody going to hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, foundational concept in the theology is alluded to all over the place, but never like directly mentioned, right? The idea that we're saved by Jesus from hell. Right. Back, like, you know, when I was growing up, going to church and, you know, Christmas and Easter and realizing like that when I was a kid, I didn't quite understand the magnitude of like, oh, oh, savior, right? Like, and that's why everyone's happy. Like, and folks, I, I really hope I'm not offending anyone i like i grew up catholic i still consider my i still consider myself like what i refer to as like my mom's version of catholic or my grandma's version of catholic so the stuff that i'm saying right now and the jokey way that i'm saying it and the stuff that i'm about to say i hope it doesn't offend anyone out there um this is just kind of like you know my take on it my well, my human take on it right I, I grew up catholic and i'm an atheist and i hope we are offending everyone fuck y'all <laughs> well there we go see you get you get both points of view here right <laughs> <laughs> no, I love you. I love you all. I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a jokey podcast. We make jokes. Yay. Yay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, and again, I don't know how I missed it growing up as a Christian. Like the, the first things you are told about Jesus is that A, he loves you, unconditionally loves you, right? And B, he died for your sins. And depending on what type of Christian household you were brought up in, one of those things is going to be impressed upon you more than the other. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up 
with the love part being stressed like over and over, right? He loves you the way you are, just the way you are. That's how he made you. Your sins are bad, but you are not bad. You are loved and you should try to have that love uh, for your neighbor. And your neighbor is everyone, whether they live next door or in another country, have different color skin, practice different religion, practice no religion. Your neighbor is everyone, full stop. And that was Catholicism as I understood it, right? Growing up, that was mom's and grandma's Catholicism. Um, And then I get older and I learn about the Catholic church doing and saying a lot of things. And I'm like, well, that's not Catholic. That's not what I learned. Uh, You know, what's this like, you know, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, anti-pagan, anti-atheist. There's so many antis. Like, where's all the love? Where's all the stuff that like I know is real? Because this is all fan fiction, right? This is, this is the made up part. This is humans adding stuff, you know, for like a selfish agenda. This is, this is putting words in God's mouth, right? Um, including the whole thing about how like God loves you so, so much, but but if you step out of line, he's going to send you to hell for all eternity. Mm. That that was when I was like, okay, this does not compute. Uh, like I, I would like a second opinion, please. And actually I got it. Keenan. I told you about Father Jerry, Father James Earl Jones, right? Warning us about like, you know, uh, taking the Bible too literally. No, it right? didn't. No, it didn't necessarily have an ark and there wasn't yeah, necessarily yeah. a great flood. Yeah. Right. Two by two and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. Um, and I mentioned another priest and I said we'd get to him eventually. He, he was our main priest at our church growing up. Right. I think he was like the deacon. And I'm not going to use his name here because I'm not 100% sure if what I'm about to say will get him in trouble. Uh. But uh, let's call him Father Fezzik um, because he looked and sounded exactly like Wallace Shawn's character in Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the inconceivable guy, right? right? Like the folks, Sicilian. if you don't know, it's like, yeah, the Sicilian, right? Um, but yeah, so this is the story of when my Catholic priest, Father Fezzik, basically told me there was no hell. Um, so I'm in middle school. Uh, I think actually maybe around Reagan's age. Um, and I set up a meeting, a meeting with Father Fezzik as a counselor, uh, as a counselor, right? Like a, a spiritual guide because I'm dealing with some like heavy, heavy thoughts and I don't know what to do. So I meet with him in his office, not on a Sunday, not at mass, just in his office. And he asks me what's wrong. And I don't want to say, I, I don't want to admit to like all the stuff that's like uh, going on in my head. So I say it this way. I say, Father Fezzik, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell. Now, folks, I didn't say I'm worried I'm going to go to hell. I was past that. I was afraid. Yes, I was terrified. But I was also already in that despair that we talk about so much on this show. I was pretty sure that the thoughts I was thinking and the feelings I was feeling meant I was going to hell. And I was, that that was just it. And Father Fezzik looked at me And he sort of chuckled and said, no, you're not. So I'm telling you that my Catholic priest, Father Wallace Shawn, Father Fezzik, (laughs) uh, I said to him, Father, I'm going to hell. And he replied with inconceivable. (laughs) Right. And I sort of just like blinked. And then my next reaction was anger for some reason. I was like, well, how do you know? And he gets up. And he goes to his bookshelf and he comes back with a copy of the Bible, the King James Bible, repeat offender on this show. (laughs) And he pushes it across the desk to me and he says, I want you to find hell in there. And so I look, Uh, I start in the Old Testament and boom, I find it and I point to it. And he looks over and he says, hmm, yeah, that's a mistranslation. (laughs) And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, that's that's the Hebrew Bible, originally in ancient Hebrew. And the word that is supposed to be in there is Sheol. Sheol is the place that the Hebrews believed all people went when they died. It's not a punishment. It's not 
you know, all fire and brimstone. Mm -hmm. It's a resting place. It's a place of waiting because they believe that the Messiah, the Messiah, hasn't come yet. Um, it might even be a metaphor for the grave. Some scholars have argued that, but it's not hell. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, Father, I see your game. So <laughs> I flip to the New Testament. And sure enough, you know, I find another mention of hell. It's the King James Bible. It's not hard to do. So I'm like, there, right there. And even back then, I remember things like, why am I happy about this? Why am I proud of this? You know? Um, but he looks over again and he's like, oh, yeah, that's also a mistranslation. That was originally in Aramaic. Uh, and that word was Gehenna. And I'm like, okay, so they call it Gehenna, big deal. And he's like, yeah, it is a big deal because Gehenna is an actual place in the world geographically. You can hop on a plane and you can go to Jerusalem and you can see it. It's like a, a, a flower garden now. But back in the day, back in Jesus's time, it just so happened to be the city garbage dump. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, people would throw their garbage onto this huge pile, this huge mountain of garbage called Gehenna. And there was so much garbage that sometimes they would set it on fire just to burn it all away. And the flames would burn day and night. And you'd look out your window at this burning mountain and you'd get chills because like, it, it looks kind of spooky and supernatural and otherworldly. It's literally a mountain of fire, right? Now get this. It was also the final resting place of criminals. So if you were a criminal, if you were executed, if you were beheaded, if you were crucified, you didn't get an honorable Jewish burial. You didn't get an honorable Roman burial. Your remains were just tossed into Gehenna. So everyone in Jerusalem understood it was a place that you didn't want to end up, the final resting place for people who disobeyed the law. Mm -hmm. Now, remember... Jesus and his disciples were not exactly on good terms with the authorities, right? They were constantly getting the Pharisees man, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Romans had to keep stepping in. They were, they were being noticed. <laughs> they were traitors and they were blasphemes. Right. According to, right. According to the Pharisees, according mm -hmm. to like religious authorities and everything like that. Right. right. So they were, they were kind of outlaws. And so, and they, they were on notice, right? They were, they were like, like, I'm watching you. Right. <laughs> um, and so Jesus was like, guys, teach my teachings, spread my word, but be cool about it, right? Don't cause unnecessary trouble. Work within the system. Render unto Caesar if you have to. Don't get violent. Don't start a riot because if you do, I'm looking at you, Peter, chopping ears off, mm -hmm. you might end up in Gehenna. <laughs> Just right? like put that ear back so you don't end yeah. up in Gehenna. <laughs> right, yeah. So like, you know, and he's saying like, teach and lead by example, not by fear. Kind of ironic, given how today, 2,000 years later, some folks use hell specifically as a scare tactic, right? When maybe that wasn't the original intention. Um, and it was here that I looked at my priest and I was like, Father, are you telling me there's no hell? And he's like, absolutely not. But I think now we need to talk about what's really bothering you, what's going on at home, all that stuff. And so we talked and I told him how like recently I'd just been really angry, really frustrated, a lot of uh, in intrusive thoughts. Um, looking back, probably uh, uh, puberty had something to do with it, right? It was that time, right? Your body and your brain are just like a perfect storm of shittiness, right? As you change and you readjust and, you know, school, like you said, Keenan, middle school is relentless, mm -hmm. right? It's merciless. And I feel so bad for my middle school students. I'm like, God, you guys are running the gauntlet right now, right? And they expect you to do math and history on top of that, <laughs> right? And I told Father Fezzik about fights I was having at home and with my mom, with my dad. And I, I told him about uh, one I had just had, uh, the, the fight that had actually brought me here uh, to his office. And he asks, 
so how do you feel? And I say, like, awful, terrible, like the worst person in the world. Like, I'm a terrible person. I I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve what I have. And I feel so bad. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I I feel like I I can never be happy again. I I feel like, and he said, you feel like you're in hell. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah. And he points to his head and to his heart. And he says, hell does exist, but it's not a place. And we don't have to stay there forever. There are people we can go to. There are places we can go to. Church is one of them. It's one of them. But there are other places that you can also go to, that you should also go to if you feel like you need help. Don't ever think that God wants you to be in that place. It's a place we all fall into sometimes, but it's not punishment. It's not permanent. And never think that you're alone in your fight to get back out. (sighs) Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everyone, for letting me, you know, tell that story. Father Fezzik is um, one of the reasons I'm still keeping my faith, even though I, I guess I don't have a very uh, conventional view of the whole thing. But yeah, sorry, we got, we got way sidetracked. Um, That's not know. atypical from some of the ways that like the 1600s, um, not necessarily theologians, but like people like um, John Bunyan here at the Pilgrim's Progress writes about earth as being hell and it's it's right. earthliness as being separate from godliness um some people have argued that like hell doesn't exist yeah hell is not a real place but it is mm-hmm. it is whatever is the opposite of god the the lack right. of god is hell like one right. is light one is dark yeah yeah and and we're gonna see you know later in this movie even right um a priest a catholic priest a mm-hmm. jesuit priest he's like most educated catholics don't even believe in the devil right right so it's a, you know, it, it almost seems like um, we're, we're moving in a direction of like, you know, having it be, you know, a concept or a state of mind or something like that. Right. And that's sort of like, you know, for, for, you know, those, those people who like me, like they were struggling with that whole, that weird paradox of like, you know, a, a, a loving, um, you know, a parental God that, that loves you, but then like also punishes you in this like horrible eternal way. Like it, it, makes more sense if it's like oh no like like it's it's you know it's a state of mind that we kind of like slip into right um you know uh, on our own and you know it's it's mankind's job to help your neighbor out of that right mm-hmm. um and it's you know it's it's one of the you know one of the struggles of life right um rather than this like you know like afterlife uh, prison punishment thing that you know uh, was used as a, as a scare tactic you know um you know ages and ages ago and uh, still today um yeah but uh, yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, we uh, we got way sidetracked. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe not because that story occurred to me while watching this minute. And to bring it back now, right? Like, let's get back to this minute. Uh, so we're climbing out of hell. <laughs> we're back in this. We're back in this minute. Um, and we look at Karis, and we look at what he's going through personally. And in this scene. He's literally descending deeper and deeper into into this literal hell, right? This hospital is hell. Um, and it mirrors the story of the harrowing of hell, right? Where Jesus descends to save the lost souls and bring them out of hell. Karis is descending to save his mother. But uh, here's the sad part, folks. Even before Karis entered that hospital, Karis was already in hell. In his mind and in his heart, he was already there. So how can he expect to save his mother? 
But for now, right, let's let's take a look back at the top of this scene and we can actually look at the visuals and look at uh, what's going on in this minute. Right. It's interesting because in the screenplay, we have it uh, a little bit different than what we end up in the film. So in the screenplay, which again, it's it's all out of order, right? Um, the movie ends up being this cut back and forth between Chris's problems and, um, and Damien's problems. Um, in the original script, this scene that we see here is is right after um, his conversation with uh, with Mary. So after he's gone to visit Mary um, in her house, then we stay with uh, we stay with Damien, and then we get really soon after that um, the scene where he's going to Bellevue. So we haven't had time Weird. to sort of think about. Yeah, we haven't had time to think about. Oh you know, is that, is that moment where he visits Mary and she makes him dinner and they have this conversation, is that going to work? We know right afterwards, basically like within a minute that it doesn't work. Yeah. And so the camera uh, is, is talked about here in the screenplay. It says interior hall at Bellevue hospital day. The camera is fixed at one end of the hall and Karis and uncle are approaching from far down the opposite end. However, their dialogue is clearly audible at all times. Their voices metallically reverberate. Right. Mm. So, so as Blatty is originally conceiving it, um, he's written it again in a very visual way, but the camera stays in one side of the hallway and father uh, Karis and his uncle are coming towards us gradually. They start off very small and they cut closer to us. Right. Hmm. In the film itself, we start um, on the door with the two of them coming in in this two shot. And then um, uh, they approach us and it becomes a single of the uncle. And then we're going to cut back and forth between singles of the uncle and of uh, Damien. Hmm, yeah. Right. So we we don't get to see that they're, that they're small. We are thinking about their problems. You know, it's subjective. We're with them, as opposed to sort of objectively looking at them. And it get, it does get closer to your idea, right? Of mm-hmm. of th- we are with them as they are approaching hell and as they're harrowing. Yeah. 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 And then one other thing that's really cool about it is um, on Damien's side. Because we're in this hallway with a bunch of uh, little rooms with them, uh, with the light coming in. Maybe it's sunlight, maybe it's not. But right. as as Damien is approaching and walking closer and closer uh, to the end of the hallway, um, mm-hmm. the light is changing on him constantly. So he's in darkness, mm-hmm. and he's in light. He's in darkness. He's in light. He's in darkness. He's in light. Oh. Yeah. Um, and it, it gives us the sense that he is, um, you know, uh, what's the word? How would you describe Damien here? He's uh, uh, fluctuating. Yeah. Or, or struggling. Yeah. Um, these are good words. Mm-hmm. Harrowing. <laughs> Harrowing. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that is, right? Like he is. Is, um, he's beset. He's yeah, fluctuating. I like mm. that. And so we, the light and the darkness are are, are battling are with him uh, yeah. for for ownership of him. Right. Mm. And then we get these shots of these poor patients at Bellevue outside of the nurses' station. Oh my god. Yeah. Pretty pretty rough shots there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I like that. So as opposed to them being small at the end and getting larger, and and we we gradually figure out their problems. We're with their problems at the very beginning. And we hear from the uncle that it's edema that is affecting her brain. Um, so the the problems with her leg are causing her mental problems. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't even like here's how ignorant I am. I didn't even know that a leg problem like like edema could could do that. Like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know, um, you know how accurate that is. But um, I don't. Yeah, I don't have a lot of medical training as well. But yeah, I when I was a kid, I heard this story about this Olympic gymnast who had an mm-hmm. embolism in her leg, which is different. That's a blood clot. Okay. And that that it caused her heart attack. You know, she was like 22 years old, the, you know, oh the, the, the height of her physical prowess, right? And then she breaks her leg or sprains it or something. So there's a blood clot and that goes into her heart, you know. 
Um, and so that that kind of that scares the crap out of me all the time. Wow. So they weren't warning about that. But so an edema is a swelling. So it'd be a fluid that's affecting that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Uh, someone who has more medical training can tell us. But um, that's yeah. at least the uncle's idea. Yeah, that it's this swelling and the uncle is giving him all this uh this blame, right? Without necessarily right. meaning to that. Oh, if we had taken care of that small problem, she wouldn't oh have gone God. crazy. Yeah. 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 Oh, uncle, uncle. Well, I mean, he doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a name but, here. I just call him uncle Tito. Uncle Tito. And, and yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about him in the, in the next that guilt. That's what uncles is for. Yep. That's what uncles is for. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, fun, fun minute today. <laughs> <laughs> or I hope it was. I hope it was interesting, folks. Um, but I think um, so. Uh, did we have anything else, Keenan? No, I think we got a whole lot. We fell into a couple of traps in a row. We, yeah, and we and luckily we got out of it. Um, <laughs> I think I think our characters are still in them. Oh um, no, you know, they're trapped gonna, in there. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're yeah, uh, yeah. So so we'll just have to keep on. Uh, we'll just have to keep on making these episodes and, and hope that they get out. Um, but. Also, yes, folks, we now have a listener group for the show on Facebook. Um, it's called Compelling Conversations, an Exorcist Minute listener group. It's a private group, but just request to join and we'll let you in. And then you can be in here with us. Uh, and you can talk about the movie, interact with us, and also fellow fans, uh, post questions, polls, memes, all that stuff. Um, and of course, as always, if you'd like to leave us a message, our email is theexorcistminute at gmail.com, all one word, and we'll be sure to read it. Lastly, if you like the show and you want to help us out, the best thing that you can do for a new podcast that's just starting out is to leave a five-star review, and that'll help us. Um, that'll help other people find us, and we can keep growing this cool community. All right, so, Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Folks, until next time... The power of Totoro compels you. He's my favorite Uh-oh. neighbor. Yes. Uh-oh. Right? And you got to love your neighbor too. Right? <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? That's what it says in the Bible. Love thy neighbor Totoro. <laughs> love thy neighbor Totoro as if he were yourself. Yes. Right? But actually, he's the god of death. <laughs>